And while they're making their way there, I'd ask that you would turn with me to the book of Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. This morning we'll be looking at verses 6 through 11. Now, um, I really struggled with finding an opening illustration for this sermon this week. So I'm indebted to Peter Balky, who uh, threw down a challenge. So this is how it began. And actually, I'm really thankful for that because I, I think it fits well. Um, anyway, in the final installment of J.R.R. Tolkien's trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien ex- tells about the epic final struggle between the forces of evil and the forces of good. It's titled The Return of the King because the crowning moment of the book is the coronation of Aragorn, which if you've read the books or if you've seen the movie, you know he is the rightful king of the people of Gondor. From the beginning of the book, things look very bleak for Aragorn and for the free peoples of Middle-earth. They simply just don't have the numbers to stand against the onslaught of the hordes of orcs coming against them. Ever since the corruption of his ancestor, Isildur, Aragorn had been forced to wander the world in anonymity. And he'd been content to do that because he was afraid. Uh, he, was, he lived with the burden of shame of his line, and he was concerned that he too might fall to the corrupting power of evil. Everyone thought that the line of the kings had been broken. But in the return of the king, Aragorn emerges from anonymity and takes his rightful role, and he rescues his people from certain destruction. And the first time we see Aragorn really stepping up, taking that rightful role, is when he goes to search for an army of dead men who had been cursed by his ancestor Isildur. Uh, This army of men had made oaths to come to his ancestors' aid. But when he called on them, they had chosen the side of evil and they betrayed him. And they were cursed then to wander the earth restless until they were called on again by the son of the king. This army would answer to no one but the heir of Isildur. And there was only one man who could set them free from the curse of their wickedness. And that was Aragorn because he was the king. Now, I have always found that section of the book just a little weird. The more I thought about it, the more I appreciate Tolkien's imagination and how well Aragorn's summoning of this army reflects the way that Jesus Christ has exercised his kingly power to summon dead, rebellious sinners like you and me to himself. We are all, in a sense, oath-breakers, like these men who chose the side of evil. We've assaulted God and his holiness by seeking to satisfy ourselves in our sinful passions. And so we're trapped, unable to deliver ourselves from death's dominion. There is only one Lord who is able to deliver us. He has done so by entering this world as one of us, taking humanity on himself, fulfilling God's perfect standard through his obedience on our behalf, and then offering himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins on the cross. And then on the third day, he rose again. And he has therefore secured an eternal redemption for all who trust in him. This is the king who is powerful enough to make dead hearts alive again. To reforge the imago Dei that Adam broke. What a great savior we have. This is the king who is greater than even Tolkien could imagine. Now the theme of our passage this morning is the exclusivity of King Jesus. 
The concern that Paul had for the churches in Galatians when he wrote them was that they had apparently abandoned the gospel of God's grace for a distorted gospel, a gospel that appealed to their reasonability, but which was in the end powerless to set them free. There is one gospel, one king, one faith that is effective to deliver sinners from the reign of sin and death. As Peter says in Acts 4 verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. So the the singularity of Christ's rule and redemption is our only hope for salvation. And so if we are to apply the lessons we learned last week of how we are called to be guardians of the gospel, we must therefore remain committed to that conviction that there can only be one. Let's begin this morning by reading our passage. We'll be looking at Galatians 1. I'll be reading verses 6 through 10. If you would, please stand once more for the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not, Not that there is another one. But there are some of you who there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, the message I bring to you this morning is driven by the same goal that I think drove Paul to write this letter in the first place. It is to expose you to the treasure of the only God, the only message, and the only end which is worthy of your allegiance. It is to see you committed to faith in this message of God's grace as servants who are also counted as God's sons. And the main idea is simply this. There is only one gospel through which we can be saved. There is only one gospel through which we are saved. And we want to break that out. And I have three points for you this morning, which all have to do with that reality. We are going to see, first of all, the one God. The one God. Second, we are going to see the one gospel. The one gospel. And finally, we'll see the one goal. The one goal. First, we want to begin by looking at this one God. During Jesus' ministry... Uh, when we were reading through the Gospel of Mark, making our way through that, we read about how he was approached by a very discerning scribe who asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus responded to him by quoting Deuteronomy 6. He said, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The highest calling given to a man or a woman is this then, to know, love, and serve God. 
our relationship with God is what gives significance to our lives. It's what we were made for. It's what Christ gave his life for. We are called to be one people under one God, united in one faith, under one Savior, in one message. It's this singularity that Paul, that made Paul so concerned about the condition of the churches in Galatia. Because as we read in verse 6, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The, the churches in Galatia were doing the inconceivable. And Paul's astonishment was driven by three things. So three things we want to see. First of all, he was astonished at who they were abandoning. He was astonished at who they were abandoning. He says, you are deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Now, desertion in any army is treated as one of the most repugnant crimes that a person can commit. To leave your post is something worthy of death. This was the crime that led Isildur, back in our opening illustration, to curse those men in Lord of the Rings. They, they abandoned their post. But the crime that Paul levels against the Galatians we see is far greater. He charges them with deserting the very king who had called them in his grace out of their enslavement to sin and to the grace that he had secured for them through the shed blood of his only begotten treasured son, Jesus Christ. In verse 3, Paul made it very clear that grace and peace are from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father. It's very clear then that though Paul was the one who initially preached this gospel to the Galatians, when he says the one who called them, he's not referring to himself, he's referring to God. That effectual call came from God the Father. The Galatians then were deserting not Paul, but God. So this is a very high crime that helps us to make sense of why Paul was so flabbergasted at these churches. Now it's important for us to see the significance of the words, Him who called you. Because it's the effective call of God's grace which defines believers in one hope under the gospel of Christ. In Ephesians 4, 1-6, which you read earlier, Paul urges believers to walk in the manner worthy of the calling that we have been called in, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain unity of the Spirit and in the bond of peace. He says there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, Romans 8, verses 29 through 30 explains that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that, we might, that, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And we are connected to this anchor of hope, the anchor of the gospel, by the golden chain of God's sovereign work, assured that those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In John 10, Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. 
And then he emphasizes how he calls his sheep. He says that his sheep hear him when he calls, and they follow him. In verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, that the fa- this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. So scripture credits God calling us to himself as the defining reason for our response to faith. If you're looking for an X factor, it's God. That calling goes on to define us in our relationship to him as his beloved children. It's not as if this is a title we can secure for ourselves. It's something he secured for us. And that's the reason why it's trustworthy. That's the reason we can have hope. And then we live out of that hope as a different people. Uh, Peter explains, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Paul was right to be concerned for the churches in Galatia. They were deserting the one who had called them into his grace, the one who had called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. Paul was also astonished, secondly, at what the Galatians were deserting. So he's astonished at who they're deserting. He's also astonished at what they're deserting. They were deserting the gospel of God's grace for a different gospel, and and not a gospel that made them more free, but rather that enslaved them, a gospel that enslaved them under works of the law. There's a, a vital connection, according to Paul, between allegiance to God and allegiance to his message of grace, which is the gospel that the Galatians had first received when Paul had come to them on his first missionary journey. Well, how were the Galatians deserting God who had called them out of darkness? Well, the answer is that they were leaving the gospel of God's grace for another one, a distorted one of works. Paul would have us understand that abandoning the gospel of Christ's cross and the grace of God that is received through faith in him is the same as deserting God himself. It's God's work and it's God's message. Imagine that you were able to that you were given tickets to go to Lambeau Field later this afternoon. That ticket grants you free access to the game. You didn't have to pay for them. They were given to you. You present that ticket to the ticket master at the gate, they welcome you in, and they bid you enjoy the game as, with all the benefits of a ticket-holding fan. If you have a ticket, you don't try to sneak into the stadium through an underground access tunnel. If you tried to do that when you were caught, your ticket wouldn't do you any good. You'd be treated as a trespasser. You, you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't, be able to not, you wouldn't be treated as a ticket holder. You'd be prosecuted. By turning to a different gospel a gospel of works. The Galatians were, in effect, trying to get into God's household, not through the door of his grace in Christ, which had been thrown open for them. They were trying to get into it through the sewer of their own works. Though they had been called as sons, they found something appealing in trying to approach God's mercy as a robber. 
A ticket holder enters by the gate that's been opened for them. A criminal tries to sneak sneak in through a back door. The way the Galatians were being deceived into thinking that they had to earn God's favor on top of the work of, of of, of the grace of Christ meant that they were not only abandoning God's message of peace, they were actually abandoning God himself. By drawing attention then to the way that the Galatians were abandoning God and his message, Paul demonstrates to us that God will not grant the riches of his mercy to us when we try to get them on our own terms. God does not negotiate. He only gives grace. The grace of Christ has been secured for us by the blood of Christ. And the only way that we can receive that is through the gospel of the sufficiency of the cross. Now, the third thing we see that Paul was astonished at was the speed at which the Galatians were apparently deserting God and the gospel of his grace. Now, I have learned that there is an art form to getting a two-year-old ready to go out the door, especially in the winter, because it takes so many layers. I am always amazed at how short Titus' attention span can be and how quickly he can be distracted from what we're trying to do. So when I'm 15 minutes late, it's usually because I was just trying to get him to put his coat on. There was something about this other gospel that appealed to the Galatians. It was shiny. It was attractive. And that appeal led them into their desertion. They didn't see the danger of what they were doing because they were too fixed on what this this other gospel seemed to offer them. Paul found the speed of their desertion astonishing and perplexing, and rightly so. He had seen the power of God at work in these churches. Uh, They had received the gospel of the cross in the power of the Holy Spirit. And while he confesses his fear in chapter 4 that he has labored over them in vain, I think we can say that Paul had not given up hope in the one who had originally called them in his grace through the message of the cross. I have to believe that his confidence in the effective work of Christ was stronger than his anxiety over this church's current circumstances. We should share, however, uh, in Paul's astonishment at the Galatians, how, how they were, and how they were so quickly deserting God uh, and who had called them into his life. We should recognize, as we do so, that an action like that cuts against the very reason we were created and against the very office and identity that has been given to every believer. We should also recognize that the weakness of the Galatians is a weakness, a trait, that we all share. Didn't we just sing together about how our hearts are prone to wander from the God we love? Haven't we all experienced times when our faith was nothing more than a smoldering wick? And we all resonate with Paul when he cries out in Romans 7 against the sin that still was, remained in him. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? As long as we are in this world, we must not cease to be astonished at our sin and at the speed with which we are prone to desert the one who called us and who loves us. We must likewise never cease to be astonished at the richness of Christ's grace towards us. The answer for our weakness is found in none other than the King and in no other message than the good news of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, Paul says. He will deliver us from this body of death. So though our ragged faith would seem to fail, He will hold us fast. 
He does not break the bruised reed. He does not quench the smoldering wick. And if there is anything fitting to be found within us before God, it is there because He is at work. He sees us as He sees His sons and His daughters because there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony, the message given at the proper time. It is astonishing to see the rate of speed with which we so easily fall prey to lies and to fears and to old desires. It's enough to plunge us into a deep, deep depression. It is enough to shake the very foundation of your soul. But brothers and sisters, the grace of Christ is stronger than your weakness. It is faster than your desertion. And and it is trustworthy. As believers, we must always look to the one God who has laid claim to us and called us. And as we do, we will find hope and assurance in the power of this message and in the experience of his daily grace. So that is the glory of the one God. Secondly, we see the one message. Now, when you're driving from one place to another, most of the time you can get there by going different ways. One way might be the fastest. One way might have the best scenery. One, one way have, may have more or less traffic, but whichever path you choose, likely you'll still get there. You, know, you might get the impression when Paul tells the Galatians that they are turning to a different gospel that maybe there are different ways to get to God, each with their own flavor, of course, but in the end with the same destination. Paul, though, quickly denies that in verse 7 when he explains that there is not another gospel beside the one that he had first preached when he, was in, when he had come to the Galatians. Now, this helps, to us, helps to explain why Paul was so concerned with the Galatians. There is only one gospel, one message by which men and women are made right with God, one gospel that accounts for the way we can receive God's grace. The Galatians weren't turning down a detour that would eventually take them to their final destination. They were turning down a road that was going to lead them off a cliff. In verse 7, we finally realize that the reason the Galatians were deserting God is because certain teachers had come in among them, troubling them, by questioning their confidence in the gospel they had received from Paul, and offering instead a message that was a distortion of the truth with deadly effects. The men who had come in uh, among the churches in Galatia weren't offering a wholesale new religion. They actually claimed to be Christians. They claimed to know Christ. But when you got down to it, you realized that the message they preached was radically different from the one that Paul had first, Paul and Barnabas had first preached to the Galatians. It was a message that was wholly different than the message of God's saving grace. It was, as we will see, a message that placed a requirement of works on believers, saying, in effect, that while Jesus was uh, the perfect sacrifice for sins, the way that you have peace with God, enduring peace with God, is through works of the law. They claimed that the gospel that the Galatians had received from Paul was defective, that it didn't tell the whole story, and that the the Galatians, we see, were clearly being persuaded by their arguments, leading to their desertion of the gospel of the grace of Christ. If we put ourselves in the shoes of the churches who were in Galatia, it's not hard to imagine the sort of pressure that they were coming under. These men questioned Paul's authority in an effort to undermine his message. And Paul wasn't there to give an account or to say, no, they've got it wrong. 
he's off sharing the gospel in other places. And the Galatians, who are still new to their faith, are wondering, wait a second, are you sure we got it right? These teachers claimed insight that the Galatians didn't have. And they must have looked pretty righteous with all the extra things they did. How do you know who to listen to? Whose authority can you trust? These are questions that the Galatian church is dealing with. In verse 8, Paul urges the Galatians in their commitment to the message of the cross. He says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you formerly, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul did not want the faith of the Galatians to rest in the messenger. He wanted it to rest in the power of the message. As one theologian comments, the truth of the message depends on its content, not on the credentials of the messenger. Paul cared less that the Galatians accepted his authority than he cared about whether or not they accepted the truth of the gospel. As one of my old professors said once, he exclaimed, what we learn from this is that the gospel is bigger than even the apostles. That's why he tells the Galatians that if he or anyone who was with him or even an angel of heaven appeared to them and told them a different message, they should not leave the gospel they'd already received. The gospel of the cross must rule as a standard by which we judge every other teaching that we hear. The Bible records plenty of examples where angels uh, brought messages to God's people. But the Bible never teaches us to accept their message simply on the authority of their heavenly rank. After all, in, in his effort to deceive, we are told that Satan often portrays himself as an angel of light. The Apostle John exhorts us in his first letter, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. But how do you know what standard to test them by? As, as teachings come out and theories come out, what is the standard with which you should judge them? Well, it's the gospel. And it's clear for us to see that whatever authority these false teachers were claimed to have, they did not meet that standard. They claimed insight but they were preaching a poisonous message since Paul emphatically says that anyone, himself included, who preached a message uh, like this one which had departed from the one gospel of God's grace is under the curse of God's wrath and of his judgment. Paul didn't understand these, these teachers to be making minor mistakes with the message they preached. This other gospel was a corrupt, cursed thing, a total departure from the truth that had, he had been commissioned by Christ to preach to the nations. The gospel of the cross of Christ has to be the standard by which we judge every message. Even now, as I preach to you, you should be evaluating my message according to its fidelity to this message of the gospel. The message of that God in his mercy, because of the love with which he has loved us, gave his only begotten son to pay for the sins of the world so that all who repent and believe in Jesus Christ should not perish under his wrath, but should have eternal life with him. We must guard our ears, our eyes, our pulpits 
from false gospels that distort the message of God's grace. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to try to draw away disciples after them. Satan's dedication to trying to upset Christ's flock and to cast shame on his name requires us to be vigilant as we guard the message that has been entrusted to us. John Calvin has famously responded that the pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and themes. And he says the scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. In the case of the Galatians, Paul had to use one strong voice to accomplish both of these things because, as it seems, the flock had taken a liking to the wolves that had come in among them. It's impossible for me to understate the consequences of deserting the gospel of God's grace in favor of a distorted one like what was happening in the churches in Galatia. The word which we translate accursed here does not have in mind a temporary sort of disaster but a vengeful judgment from God. And Tom Schreiner points out a connection between this word and the Hebrew word haram, which we saw back in Joshua, which is the word for destruction. This is the word Scripture uses when it describes the way Jericho was treated, how it was devoted to God to be destroyed. You can see then why Paul was so concerned about the Galatians. He, he thought about these churches as his very children. And here they are going down the same path of those Canaanite kings and those Canaanite cities that resisted God and hated him and were consequently destroyed by him in his burning wrath. When we abandon the truth for a distortion, we are like people in a desert who, having been led to relief at a perfect desert oasis, decide instead to run back into the hot sand, chasing the mirage of an ice cream truck. The, the consequences of abandoning the truth of the gospel are lethal. So we must stand guard, making the gospel of Christ cross the standard by which we judge every message we hear. Brothers and sisters, I stand before you today and I ask you to search your souls and your hearts and to count the cost of following Christ. I don't know what lies in the days ahead. 2021 might be the best year of your life, and it might be the worst. Jesus tells us that we ought not to worry about that because there's enough trouble for today. We must trust the grace of God will be given to us in measure as we need, letting tomorrow worry about itself. Even so, Jesus has warned us that in this world we will have trouble. And I think that soon enough we are going to learn firsthand the costliness of being Jesus' disciple. But I am convinced, and I hope you are too, that the only message of hope that is able to withstand times of good and bad, the only message that is able to actually deliver on its promises of hope and joy and life and salvation is this message, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of his cross. And of that, we must never be ashamed. A temptation to distort and soften this message will always be there, but we must resist it. Christ does not call us to trade like for like but instead he calls us to trade the temporary for the eternal. He calls us to cease from our work and to trust in the effectiveness of what he has done. And that's the call of the gospel. 
And so let us brand these words on our souls. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So we have seen the one God, we've seen the one message. We conclude our time, we want to look at the one goal. When it comes to the way we think about our relationship with God, Christians must do so in two ways. We are to be understood, we are to understand ourselves as to be servants, unworthy servants, and we are to understand ourselves to be sons. And I say sons, including all of you ladies too, because sons receive the inheritance. This is the pattern of Jesus Christ in the gospel. It was the mindset we are called to have as we reflect the glory of Christ to the world that is around us. In humility, we are to adopt the priorities of Jesus, not looking just to our own interests, to our selfish interests, but actually to the interests of others. What benefits my neighbor? Jesus, though he is the Son of God, did not count his office as something which exempted him from service. Rather, we are told in Philippians 2, that he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a shameful cross. In that service, Jesus teaches us to prioritize the will and the glory of God. And in that service, Jesus accomplished what was necessary to take us from being servants to sin to make us sons with him. Doubtless, the false teachers that were troubling the Galatians charged Paul with being self-serving. Their allegations are reflected here in verse 10 where Paul asks rhetorically, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I, if I, he answers, if I were trying to please man, I would not be the servant or the slave of Christ. A good servant leverages their skills, their resources, their very life for one purpose, the pleasure of their master. When you read about Paul's life, it is almost laughable to think that anyone would dare accuse him of seeking to please men. Paul was whipped, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked, stoned, run out of town, assaulted, plotted against, mobbed, all for the gospel he preached. He bore, as he says, the marks of Christ on his very body. He didn't need a tattoo to mark him as a slave of Christ. He had scars that proved it. The evidence of Paul's devotion to Christ apparently didn't stop these false teachers from trying to smear his authority and and by effect his message by questioning his motives. It's likely that they charged Paul with leaving out works of the law, in particular circumcision, leaving that out of his gospel in an attempt to try to curry some favorable response from the Gentiles. They argued that they were more in line with God's will because they required obedience to the commands of the Mosaic law. But clearly, Paul was not after the praise of men. Because as he says here in verse 10, if he was still looking to please men, he says, I would never have become Christ's slave. Paul did not preach a message of salvation by grace because he was trying to gain a following for himself. He preached it out of his service to Jesus. And he'll explain later how uh, the gospel these men were preaching, this distorted gospel of works, actually opposes God. Uh, For now, he simply focuses on the simple fact that you cannot please God or claim to have Christ as your Lord if you are not committed to the gospel of salvation by grace, through faith, 
in Christ alone. The gospel of the cross excludes us from boasting in ourselves. When we confess that we are sinners, we admit that we are unable to cleanse ourselves of our unrighteousness. When we claim Christ as our atoning sacrifice, we are saying that he is the only one who is capable of ransoming us from the penalty of God's wrath. When we say we are his disciples, we join him on a road to the cross, dying with him in the sure hope that just as God raised him from the dead, so also he will raise us from the dead and glorify us with him just as he has promised. When we say that we are servants of Christ, we are forfeiting every other attempt to make ourselves right with God, and instead we are embracing the free gift he gives to all who believe. As we will see next week, there was a time when Paul did look to please men. Uh, During his time as a Pharisee, Paul was rising through the ranks. His war against the church pleased the Jewish leaders, and he thought, in effect, he was pleasing God. But in fact, he was not. And after his conversion, we see a priority shift in Paul's life. He ceased being an enemy of Christ. He became Christ's slave. He cast away all those accolades, all those respected titles, his his respected life in Judaism, and he chose the path of the cross because we see he treasured the glory of Christ and the pleasure of Christ above everything else, the way a servant of Christ, a slave of Christ ought to. As servants and sons, Christians are called to live with one goal, the glory of our one Savior through the one message of grace and peace. It is a message that naturally offends the sensibilities of of fallen men, which is why you cannot treasure the approval of man and the approval of Christ. You will serve one or the other. There can only be one end, one ultimate end, one great purpose to your life, just as there's only one God and only one name by which we are, may be saved. For, Romans 14, 7-9 says, none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, for this purpose, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Now, when Aragorn, the rightful heir of the throne, faced death and took his place as the king of his people, he brought peace, he brought hope, he brought healing, and he brought victory to his land. There was only one king, and he had returned. Jesus Christ has secured a better inheritance for us as our king, as our master, as our Lord, as our brother, and as our savior. We must never tire of this message. We must never trade it for another. We must never forget that our true identity is that we are sons and daughters of the one God, brought to peace through faith in one message, living for one purpose, the glory of our King. That is a life worth living. And my appeal to you all is to set that goal before you this morning. Let's pray. Father, what a strange thing it is to be able to say, to be able to say in the same sentence, I am a sinner, and yet I am joyful and hopeful. 
And the reason that is possible is because you sent your beloved son to die for that sin and to rescue your people from an evil world to be joined forever with him in heaven. Father, what joy has filled our hearts this morning as we've heard the message of the gospel preached to us. It is frightening, Father, to look at how quickly the Galatians deserted this message and deserted you. It's frightening because when we look at our own hearts, we feel the burden of how easy it is for us to wander from you. We are like sheep. We are like stupid sheep at that. We seek our own destruction. And yet you are the kind shepherd. You corral us. You protect us. You call us. And you deliver us. We are at your mercy, O God. And merciful you are. We confess all of these things. In the name of our one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I think it's a